Welcome to, uh, to Anthem Church. Really wonderful, really wonderful to be together uh, on this incredibly gorgeous day. Um, we're in the book of 1 Peter. We've been going through the book of 1 Peter for a couple of months now, and I, I hope that you're starting to pick up on a particular pattern, that Peter is deeply concerned that you and I would be living our life of faithfulness in the midst of being exiles in a foreign context. He wants to shape that. He wants to train that. He wants to develop that. And he wants to make sure that we do that with this sense of individual responsibility. Uh, how many, well, I don't even need to ask. For those of you that are parents, particularly parents of kids that are of the age where they can do chores, I don't know if you've noticed this at all, but one thing that doesn't work is if you just call out, even in my fatherly authority, just to call out into the house, somebody do the dishes. Uh, there's, there's nobody in the house that when they hear somebody do the dishes, they think, oh, I should do the dishes. They don't just take on the responsibility themselves of saying, you know what, when my dad said somebody do the dishes, he was really hoping that I would grab a hold of that. And I typically don't have to, uh, you know, fight my kids off. They're all clamoring for the sink. They're running at it, trying to get there first, trying to be the one that gets to do the dishes. Uh, it typically goes the other way. Uh, no offense for calling um, Andrew out, but uh, I'm going to call Andrew out. So this happened the other day. I had a particular chore that needed to get done in the house. And I said, all right, guys, uh, we need to get this done. The garage needs to get cleaned up. And uh, I just noticed Andrew just sort of doing this, this sly sidestepping into his bedroom, just quietly. He didn't make a big deal out of it. Just kind of walked into his room, found his way to his couch, and just kind of sat down. And I came in a couple minutes later and said, hey, bud, how's it going? He said, good. What are you up to? Just resting. Oh, that's good. I'm glad you're getting some rest. Um, so I just thought I'd take a moment and highlight Andrew as a particular example of this because he, he loves it. Uh, but there's this this thing that oftentimes we, when, when instructions are given, we typically believe that those instructions are being given to somebody else. So if there's a call on us to do a certain thing as followers of Jesus, one of our instinctual things as followers of Jesus is to assume that that call is being applied to somebody else, that, that somebody else will pick up that ball that somebody else will do that thing. I mean, honestly, Operation Christmas Child is a great example of it. We could tell a whole church, hey, let's do this together. And in our minds, one of us or another of us or a third of us could say, oh, yeah, I'm sure there are tons of great people in the church who are going to pick up that ball and run with it. But he's not necessarily talking to me in this moment. Or when God might ask of us, like what we talked about last week, specifically to the, the call of husbands to be men of prayer, there might be this sense of like, oh, well, he's, he's talking to the other guys in the room he's or in the parking lot. He's talking to the other guys. He's not specifically talking to me in this particular situation. And Peter, as he, as he writes this letter, he's sort of taken the, um, the collective responsibility that Paul oftentimes would give when he would write to a church to the church at Corinth, to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Thessalonica. Well, Paul, Peter's not writing like Paul did in this particular situation. Peter's writing, and he says, to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. So he's writing this letter, and he's essentially saying, 
I'm writing this to you, John. And I'm writing this to you, Laura. And I'm writing this to you, Roland. And I'm writing this to you, Chris. I'm writing this letter to you. And I have expectations that you would respond. And so Peter's letter is so individual in its nature, and his hope, his goal, is that the individual follower of Jesus would take the personal responsibility to live a life of faithfulness in exile. And one of the great things about the way that Peter writes is, honestly, the the circumstances and the context are going to change from town to town or region to region or city to city, but his call does not change. He's asking something of them, regardless of the unique context that they're in. I want you to take responsibility for living this way. I want you to do things in a certain way because of who you are in Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open them to 1 Peter. We're going to look at a couple of things here. First, we're going to look at uh, what can be considered Peter sort of setting the tone for this section. Uh, There's a reason I'm going back. In our section today that starts in 1 Peter 3, 8, Paul starts with the word finally, which means he's wrapping up a thought. And so I want to go and I want to show you what, what really is setting the tone for this thought in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm not saying it's necessarily the beginning of his segment, but really the premise of his segment is 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, where Peter writes and he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter's goal here is mission. I want people, he uses the word Gentiles here, although most of the people that he's writing to would be non-Jews, a.k.a. Gentiles. He's using the word Gentiles in this context to describe somebody that doesn't know Jesus. He's saying, I want you to live in such a way that people that don't know Jesus will be glorifying God when Jesus comes again, the day of visitation. I want them in the world to come to a deep, and profound and transformative faith in Jesus Christ because of the way that you lived your life. I want them to know the goodness of God because they met you, they saw you, they heard from you, they experienced your character, they heard your testimony, they were blessed by your presence. So as aliens and sojourners, exiles and sojourners, I want you to live such honorable lives that those that don't know Jesus would glorify God. Jesus said something very, very similar when he said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and praise your Father who's in heaven. So this is Peter's operating premise. And, uh, you know, one of the things we, we kind of went through an exercise a couple of years ago, uh, we just kind of got coached through trying to process our values as a family of churches. And the guy that was coaching us through this process said, okay, let's talk about the even wins. Let's talk about how far do those values take you? What is it, like, are you going to be generous even when 
we ourselves are struggling financially? Does generosity come out of us as a matter of spirit, not just because it's convenient, not just because we have money to share, but is generosity something so deeply embedded in us that even when we have no money, generosity continues to be a value? And these are the kinds of things that were being coached of us. And this is essentially what Peter is doing as he walks through. I want you to be so honorable that even when your emperor is somebody like Nero, I want you to be able to honor him with your mouths because you have a king in heaven who rules and reigns and is over all and through all and in all. And so you can exist here knowing that you can live as a citizen with your king in heaven and you can be a blessing here on earth. Or to those of you who are uh, slaves of an unjust master, and if you were here a couple of weeks ago hearing my dad talk about that, even somebody who works in an unrighteous workplace, I want you to demonstrate the full grace and power of Jesus Christ because you know that you have a different kind of hope than the hope of this world. To the the wives of an unbelieving husband, I want you to live in such a way that your husband will see, without a word, he will see the purity of your conduct and he will come to know. He will be won over. I want you to lead your husband to Christ by the way that you live your life. Peter wrote to the, to the gals, even when your husband doesn't know Jesus, I want you to live faithfully and honorably in the way of Jesus. And so Peter kind of walks through these statements, and now he gets to the finally. In chapter 3, starting in verse 8, and I want, you to, I want you to hear this. This is important because Peter says, finally, all of you. So if there were moments where Peter was preaching to a specific group. Now he is preaching to the entirety of the followers of Jesus. So this is it. If you have your Bibles, go to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read verses 8 through 17. And then we're going to spend some time breaking these down. And these are loaded. So, uh, you know, open your Bibles, have pen and pencil ready, journal, phone, tablet, whatever it takes. Mark Avery's laptop, still, still charging. I love it. So take your notes, because this thing is jam full. It says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now, Peter quotes Psalm 34, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, 
Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Jesus, would you give us wisdom and insight to receive? We want to be followers of you who live diligently as exiles in a foreign land. Give us grace to do this well. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's dig into this because this is good stuff. Peter writes, and he says, finally, all of you, I want every single one of you to remember these things. And he gives us five operating character qualities that are really helpful for us to understand. And I want to go through these kind of quickly. This could be a three-hour sermon, but I'm disciplining myself to to not do that. Um, So Peter says, finally, all of you have unity of mind. Or if you have the NIV, it may talk about being harmonious. Okay, this idea of harmony is a, is a really helpful concept. In fact, we've had a lot of uh, questions around this idea of unity. How do we be unified when a lot of us think differently? Does, does unity equal uniformity in the body of Christ? Does every Christian have to think the same way, come to the same conclusions, operate in exactly the same way? Is that the idea of unity of mind or Is there some room for diversity in the body of Christ? Is there some ability for us to be different from one another yet unified? And that word harmony or the kind of the Greek concept that's behind this is actually extremely helpful. I asked Danny if I could borrow his piano. I am not really a musician. I'm an enthusiastic guitar player, and that's about the best that I have to offer. But let's just see here. Is that middle C? Garrison? All right, good. Thank you. All right. So here's a C note, okay, A, B, C, D, E. Here's an E note, F, G. Here's a G note. All right, C, nope, C, nope. There it is. Those are individual notes, each in their own right. They are beautiful. They bring something to the table. They add an element of music, but by themselves, they are limited But when they're brought together, the concept of harmony is that they're not played in sequence anymore, but that they're played together to create a chord and to unify, and the music comes together to do something special. And that element of harmony, the idea of notes being played together, is what Peter's talking about. Different notes working together to create a better unified picture. And this is why Paul writes when he says that I want you to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He's talking about, look, there's something that's going to happen where different people from different parts of the world are going to come to faith in Jesus. And then the spirit is going to bind them together and it's going to make a music It's going to make a a sound that changes the world. And it's the spirit that unifies. You can't just do that with any three keys and hope that it sounds good. Oh, you shut me off. Yeah, that's all right. All right. You can't just do, you can't pick any three keys at random 
and assume that those three notes are going to work together and create a chord, there is a structure to what works together, to what can be brought together. And what Peter's trying to get us to think about is how do I, as a follower of Jesus, find myself thinking with Jesus's mind, and even if I do that from a different background, a different experience, and I may even live a different way than other believers, the Spirit has the ability to bring us together in unity. Now, this has been challenged immensely in these last few months. It's been brought up multiple times how can the body of Christ be unified when there are different people who think different things? We have proposed that if we're all running at Jesus, there is a greater thing that unifies us than, for example, our political affiliations, or for example, our COVID convictions, or for example, our understanding of of race relations. These are things that are extreme hot-button issues in our current world and have splintered many even within the body of Christ. And the question has been raised, can we have unity of mind when we have these bombs that have just been dropped into the culture of the church and we have a hard time finding any sense of agreement on how to move forward together? It's Peter's belief that you can. The scriptures are not written into a time that lacked any sense of contention. You walk through the book of Acts and you see even as the book of Acts progresses, the Christians were in massive disagreement with each other on how to approach things like, can a Jew have a meal with a Gentile? Does a Gentile have to become a Jew first and then a follower of Jesus? Is that that the process that it has to happen? Can a Gentile receive the Holy Spirit? These are the kinds of questions that were being asked just in the book of Acts, and the church had to wrestle to find a way forward and be able to operate together, and those are not easy issues for them to land on. And so one of the the massive things that Peter is calling us into, I realize I'm in the first five words of this section, so I should probably pick up my pace just a little bit, But one of the things that Peter is calling us to as individuals is to take the personal responsibility to contribute to the body of Christ a note of unity, a willingness, a willingness to lay down some of our personal preferences and emotions for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ and to elevate Jesus above the things that we think so that Jesus might be glorified. Now, I realize that there's a massive amount of nuance and how to and when to and what to that comes out of that, maybe more than we could even dig into in a context like this. And that's what good, personal, faithful conversations are for, where we sit together, we talk together, we work through this. We don't assume, we don't fill in some narrative that we have in our minds. We just meet together and talk about how do we move forward together with the goal being, can we walk in Jesus together? I thought that was pretty relevant, so I spent a little bit of extra time on have unity of mind. So now let's move on to sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. I I just want to spend 20 minutes on each of those, but uh, let's just kind of go on. The second one is sympathy has to do with Peter calling every individual follower of Jesus to embrace. Now, 
some of us would say at a personality level, oh, I'm not a very sympathetic person. Oh, I, I have a hard time feeling somebody else's emotional experience as they go through what they're going through. I, I just can't engage their experience very well. And, and Peter's saying, I'm not talking personality right now. I'm talking discipline. I want you to choose to be people who are willing to understand somebody else's experience, willing to understand what somebody else is going through, how they are receiving and experiencing the events that are going on in the world. I want you to have sympathy towards that person. That's a call on believers, not a personality trait, but a call on believers to have sympathy, to be sympathetic towards another person. He continues on. Brotherly love. This is that love for the body of Christ, that we have a default posture of, I love my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't hate them. I don't resent them. I'm not bitter towards them. My default posture is I love them. Have this, Peter says. Finally, all of you have brotherly love. Have it. Possess it. Strive for it. Build it up in your lives. Choose it. It's not always natural. It is oftentimes easier to not love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Peter's saying, if we are going to do this Jesus thing, it's going to be full of brotherly love. A tender heart. If you remember, we went through Exodus 34. It talks about God's nature. And this is Peter writing about God's nature and calling it on believers. I want you to have a tender heart, meaning your heart is predisposed to mercy and forgiveness. It would be the opposite of a, a hard heart. We see hard hearts often in the scriptures. Somebody's heart was hardened. Don't let your heart be hardened. These kind of ideas of a hard heart. Having a tender heart is the opposite of that. It's saying, I'm going to choose in my heart to be a person who is predisposed to forgiveness and mercy. Meaning I know people are going to offend me. I know people are going to do things I don't like. I know people are going to do things that make me feel like less of a person. But because I have Jesus... I am going to choose to be tender-hearted towards them and predisposed to forgive the people that are offensive, even within the family. A lot of this is in the family of God context. And finally, Peter says, a humble mind. And I actually, this was pretty fascinating. Uh, I read up on this idea of humility, and it was actually an insult towards Christians in the first century that they were humble. Because humble had to do with being a servant, and being a servant was something that was not looked on in the Roman Empire as a high point of praise. The idea of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, here we are 2,000 years post-Jesus doing that, and it's one of those things that's just kind of made its way into the fabric of who we are, but to think that that act would have been offensive to a Roman citizen, that somebody who would be called rabbi, an authority figure, bowing down on the ground with a bowl of water and washing the dust off of one of his students or his servants or his subordinates' feet was unthinkable. And so it was considered an insult when they would call Christians humble. And Peter's saying, yeah, that is us. We are the people that serve when really we shouldn't be serving, but we should be served. That we would take whatever privilege or whatever advantage or whatever element of authority we might have in our life and we lay it down and we choose instead to serve one another. That defines being a follower of Jesus. We'll take that insult. That's who we are. 
And so Peter is trying to shape this sense of, I want you as followers of Jesus, if we are going to be missional, meaning taking the name of Jesus to a broken and hurting world, it's going to come by us carrying his name with these character qualities as a part of who we are. This is a great time to take inventory. It's a great time to look at your life and just say, okay, how can I grow in these areas? If I were to look at this list, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind, how could I grow in my expression of Jesus using these character qualities? That's a, a huge statement that Peter's making. And now he goes on and he gets really practical. Now he's giving us instructions of how to interact with a broken and hurting world. And he says this in verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Okay, evil is going to be done against you. And as a follower of Jesus, your job when evil is done against you, don't do evil. Whatever evil happens to you, your job is not to retaliate. It's not to respond in kind. When you are reviled or spoken nastily about or against, your job is not to then speak nastily about or against, but rather, on the contrary, bless. That's his word. I don't want you to repay evil for evil. I don't want you to return reviling for reviling. I want you to take the evil that's done against you. I want you to take the reviling that's done at you, and I want you to in response to that, bless. Now, that word is huge. It doesn't just mean to speak nice about. Or somebody does something evil to you and you just say, hey, thanks, have a nice sunny day. That word actually means to confer on somebody the blessing of the Lord. That's the picture that Peter's writing. He's saying, when somebody does evil against you, you get to take the Lord's favor towards them. You get to take his, I mean, just picture the prodigal father, the dad in the story of the prodigal son, running at the son, throwing a cloak around him, bringing him home, making a feast for him, saying, my son was lost and now he's found, putting a ring on his finger. That is the picture of the Lord's blessing towards those that have turned away from him, is lavishing his favor and his grace and his mercy and his kindness on those who have rejected him and rebelled against him and abandoned him. That's how God operates. And so Peter's saying, all right, Guys, if we're going to get really practical about what it means to an exile, be an exile, people are probably going to do evil against you. They're probably going to revile you. When you follow Jesus, there are going to be people in the world who do not respond very well to that. So how do you respond to the people who don't respond very well to that? You bless. You bless. He says, this is what you were called to. If you've ever wondered about what your calling is, <laughs> Peter summarizes the calling of every follower of Jesus as being a blessing. For to this you were called, and that through this you would obtain a blessing. So in other words, when you bless, you are blessed. That's Peter's equation. As you confer the Lord's favor on somebody else, his favor is conferred upon you. 
It's part of how we receive the blessing of God is that we proactively give his blessing away. Especially when evil is done to us. And Peter's going to expand on that just a little bit. Now, sometimes when these New Testament writers, I don't know how these letters were written. Uh, I, you know, the whole idea of papyrus, it was pretty expensive back then. So we're pretty sure that he got it right the first time. I, I don't think Peter was scratching out things and saying, no, I don't want to do that. Let me try this. Let me, you know, delete, 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 or control A, backspace. You get rid of the whole thing, start over. Filled by the Spirit, Peter wrote this letter, and something took him to Psalm 34 to enhance the point that he was making. And so Peter brings in this other scripture, and he wants to bring that to our attention so that we can better understand what he's trying to say. And I want you to hear this in verse 10. He says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days... Now, let me just kind of throw this out there as a quick survey. Any of you desire to love life and see good days? All right, yeah, Jeremy's all in. I have a hunch that you would say yes to that when pressed. <laughs> yes, I would like to love life and see good days. That sounds like a great thing. And this is where God has kind of taken this wisdom of the Psalms. It's almost like a proverb in its presentation. And he said, all right, let's talk about it. You want to love life and you want to see good days? Here's how to do that. Let him keep his tongue from evil. So if you want to love life and see good days, bridle your tongue. Go read the book of James. Get to work on making sure that the words that come out of your mouth lift people up. They encourage, they bless, they honor. That you do not use your words to curse, to tear down, to lie, to deceive, to mock, to slander, to gossip. Peter makes it very clear. You want to love life and see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Anybody know the, uh, the Christianese technical term for turning away from evil? Anybody know it? It's repent. Repent means to turn away, specifically to turn away from evil. Let him repent from evil and instead do good. How many of you have been listening to our series on, on Peter and just think, man, this guy talks about doing good a lot. He doesn't, he doesn't dig into it all that much. He doesn't tell you how to do good. He's not telling you all the categorical things that you need to do good in this world. He's saying, I want you to think, how can I be a blessing and live a life that does good, that brings God's character and blessing to this world. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Okay, this is a huge one. To seek something, we're talking about to go after it. Seek first the kingdom of God. is isn't just to wish it. It's to go after it, to look for it, to, to pray for it, to live it out. Seek peace and pursue it. The way that Peter writes that sentence or brings the psalm into his letter, it sort of gives this sense of almost like a, I, sorry, we watch National Treasure a lot, so it's very present in my mind. Just this national treasure hunt for peace. You pursue it. You go after it. You bring it into the world. It's not just hoping that it happens, but you are an active peacemaker in this world. Then he says this. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, 
and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is two times in, uh, well, two weeks for us, but two consecutive passages where Peter's talked about limited openness to the prayers of a follower of Jesus on God's part. Last week's passage, he said it to the husbands, that if you want God to hear your prayers, you're going to honor your wife as the weaker vessel. If you don't do that, you limit your ability to be heard by God. And here, quoting Psalm 34, Peter says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. God listens to those who are doing the life that he's called us into. The life that you live will open the ears of the Lord to your prayers. Again, Peter didn't explain that last week and he doesn't explain it this week. But it does have this element that Peter's trying to bring in of when we walk faithfully with God, there is a a readiness on God's part to hear our prayers. When we as followers of Jesus who know the heart of God choose to walk in disobedience or specifically to last week, choose to dishonor our wives, to not elevate them with with our words, to not care for them in the way that God has entrusted to us, that actually hinders our prayers. So Peter's writing, he's like, I want all of you to have this just just open channel of a prayer life with God. And one of the things that happens is when we know how to live and we do it, God opens his ears in that way. He listens to that person because there's something about that relationship where God wants to see us respond to him to not just be hearers of the word, but doers of it as well. So Peter writes this. He goes on in verse 13. He says, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? That's an interesting question. Because Peter's writing and he's basically saying, look, if we as followers of Jesus are doing good in the world, it would be kind of weird that somebody would come after us, right? Like, it's kind of strange to think if I'm an honorable person, if I'm an honest person, if I'm faithful to my spouse, if I'm a a faithful and diligent parent with my kids, if I'm a participant in society, if I I serve my employer well, if I live a a decent life, an orderly life, a faith-filled and courageous life full of the Spirit of God, what could the world possibly find offensive about that? It's essentially what Peter says with this. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But then he goes on. And he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. Now, why would we think that the world would lash out against somebody who does good? And the answer to that would be Jesus. The only person out of any person that has ever lived that can say beyond a shadow of a doubt that they lived without sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus never sinned, not even once. And his words and his actions were reviled by the world around him. And so Peter saying, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good knows full well what is coming. And so he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed The reality of us as followers of Jesus is that we are in a world 
that does not operate the way that it always should. The, the world of darkness that we live in is, is counterintuitive. There are times when it lashes out at things that are good for it, that are generous to it, that love it dearly and desire for it to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. There are times that that world will lash out at those things as it lashed out against Jesus, the greatest good and the most innocent and the most perfect doing the most for the people of this world he was lashed out at. And so Peter's saying, look, if you suffer, just know that there is blessing in that suffering. Now he says this, have no fear of them, that's specifically the people who would cause you to suffer for righteousness' sake, nor be troubled. Okay, think just for a minute. This is where I do wish this were a little bit smaller and we were a lot closer so I could just ask some questions and hear your answers. Why would Peter say have no fear of the people who can cause you to suffer? Why would he say don't be afraid? Peter is talking to us from a perspective of being so secured with our inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed to you. So you don't have to fear anybody that can hurt the body. You don't have to fear anybody that can revile you or do evil against you because we have nothing to fear with eternity awaiting us. If you look at the timeline of Peter's letter, many of the people that he's writing to would be alive and well when Nero's full persecution of Christians would begin where they start to be thrown into uh, the rink with the lions to be devoured when they are burnt by flames for their faith. Peter doesn't recant this message, nor would he ever, and say, oh, actually, you should probably be a little bit afraid of Nero. The message from the Holy Spirit is that as a follower of Jesus, there is nothing in this world that can take away your inheritance that can take away your eternity. And so you are commissioned here and now as somebody who can walk in the fire knowing that God is with you. So don't even be troubled. Is the world going to persecute? Is it going to revile? Is it going to lash out? The answer is absolutely. We should be prepared for that. It's been experienced for 2,000 years, and it will be experienced in an ongoing and increasing fashion until Jesus Christ comes again. So don't be troubled when it happens. Peter will say later, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that has come upon you. He wants to make it really clear. Don't be troubled. You have a chance to do something different here than to be afraid or troubled when persecution arises. Instead of those things, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for the reason for the hope that is in you. So Peter's counter to you being troubled and afraid is readiness. Instead of being troubled and afraid, I want you to set apart Christ in your heart as holy. What that means is at a gut level, 
In fact, the, the word heart there is not even the heart. It's the healthy entrails. It's the gut level. It's the deep knowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. I want you to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord no matter what is happening. Do you believe today that Jesus Christ is Lord? All right, maybe we should do this. Maybe we should say out loud, Jesus Christ is Lord. Are you ready for that? Jesus Christ is Lord. Say it. That needs to be not just said, but felt. Don't be troubled. Know that Christ is Lord. And in that, always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that you have, the reason for the hope that is in you. This picture of Peter is he's saying, look, you are going to live such a different life when persecution and evil and reviling is flung at you that when those things happen and you demonstrate hope, when you seek peace and pursue it in the midst of fire, when you do this with gentleness and respect, the thing that is going to come from that is the question, where does that hope come from? Why do you have that hope? The goal might be to crush your spirit, but the outcome would be to demonstrate hope. And it should boggle the mind of a person that is lashing out at you how much hope you have. If you're thinking of weapons in a war for this world, Peter just described that the greatest weapon that we have is the hope that is in us in Jesus Christ. Our fight, we'll put that in quotes, is to seek peace and pursue it. Our fight is to live the hope of Jesus Christ in a contentious world so much so that they look at us and say, okay, that... It's different than what I would experience if I were in your shoes. And I want that. And Peter says to do this with gentleness and respect, meaning they are going to be lashing out at you, most likely not with gentleness and respect. Those would not be the words to describe the person that is persecuting you. And the response is the contrary of their persecution. It's to defend the reason for the hope that you have with full gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So that when those who slander you, when they do that, it says that they're put to shame. And ultimately, it's not so that they would feel shame. It's not so that they would be cast out of the kingdom of God. It's not any of that. It's so that your hope so outshines their hate that there is this sense of, well, that's a different experience. That's a different kind of human being. And that's what it looks like to be filled by the Spirit of God in a contentious time. Peter finishes by saying, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. And let me just say this, and I'll close with this. Peter's thought is that there is going to be suffering, and he tags on at the end of it, if that should be God's will. 
And some of you might have a hard time thinking about God's will ever being for a believer to suffer. But once again, we would find our theology from the person and words of Jesus himself. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was preparing to go to the cross. And as he prays, if you remember the story, he asks his disciples to stay and pray, and he goes a little deeper into the garden. They all fall asleep. And Jesus goes away and prays multiple times. And his prayer is about the cup passing from him. Father, if there's any way that this cup might pass from me, that cup has been called the cup of suffering. The cup that Jesus was asking to pass has been called the cup of suffering. And Jesus says, if there's any way for that cup to pass, but not my will, but yours be done. So here's the question. Did Jesus end up suffering? The answer is yes. And it was the will of God for him to suffer. And there may come a time, as Peter says, that it is the will of God for you to suffer. The objective of Peter in that particular context is not to get you out of suffering as quickly as possible. But that through your suffering, everybody that sees you and experiences you and knows you, that they would see Jesus Christ and glorify him on the day of visitation that they would see and know that Jesus is God because they watch you live a life of honor and peace and gentleness and respect and faithfulness and courage, doing good and blessing in a contentious and fiery world. Peter did not know specifics about 2020. But it feels very much like this is a message that every single one of us needs to not just hear, but go back and revisit and revisit and revisit and revisit because we need to be trained to be like Jesus in a fiery and contentious world. My hope would be that I preach a message like this and like the dishes in my house, Everybody sprints to the sink to just get the job done because we realize that, of course, he's asking me to do that. My hope is that Peter, when he says this, that every follower of Jesus would recognize he's, he's saying that to me. But it's not our nature. The easier thing is to pass that off and to say, okay, I'll figure that out later. That's somebody else's call. That's somebody else's thing. But you should hear this. Peter is saying this to you individually. And that's how you contribute to the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is when all of God's people are walking faithfully like this, then there's a different kind of harmony. The notes that are being played work together. The chord is beautiful. That's the unity of the Spirit binding us together in the way of Jesus to demonstrate a different kind of music for the world. 
that's how we would find in a contentious time when people disagree and things are, are, are hotly contested, that's how we would find peace to move forward together is when each of us takes the responsibility to live the way that Peter invites us into. Well, it takes all of the other issues and it puts them in their context and it teaches us how to live in such a way that not only is unity possible, it is the natural outcome of all of us taking this on. And the world sees that and glorifies God, and that's what we're praying for. So let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to come together today to be here. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Jesus, your death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, the sending of your spirit, and the calling of your people to live life on mission in this world for your name. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.